Good morning. So we're going to carry on reading this morning in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting at verse 8. That's on page 311 in the Pew Bibles. And the prophet Nathan continues with a message for King David uh, from the Lord. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, at verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the name of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked men shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thank you very much, Margaret. And uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you, great to be here, and great to be diving back into this Uh, passage of 2 Samuel. I hope you've got it open in front of you. And there's an outline on the inside of the uh, notice sheet that will help us. And I want to begin by asking you, do you want this world to end and a new one to begin? Well, if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, that is exactly what you have been asking for. Listen to how it goes. Here is the most famous prayer in the world, repeated by millions of people over the last 2,000 years. It goes like this, and it's on the screen, if you can see. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an extraordinary prayer, not least because Jesus, unique to his day, teaches us to address God as Father, with the intimacy of children speaking to their Father. But it's also a prayer that takes extraordinary courage to pray, to actually want the things that we are to ask for in the prayer. Because notice, among other things, and it goes on to ask for things like daily bread and the forgiveness of sins... Here is a request for this present order to give way to the kingdom of God, for this world to end and a better world to replace it. Here is a prayer for justice to be done, for the rule of human politics to be overthrown by God's own rule. 
It's a prayer that you can really pray only if you are conscious of how far this present world falls short of the ideal, even if you realize that you are part of the problem. Now, when I was at primary school, we used to pray this prayer every day. It was just a state school that I went to. But in those days, we prayed the Lord's Prayer every day in assembly. And back then, I don't know about you, but I had no idea that I was actually asking for this world to end and a new one to begin. But that is what the prayer says. But if that's the case, that leads to two questions. First, has all this praying the Lord's Prayer amounted to anything? Has this prayer been answered? So if you look around, it would appear that the answer would have to be no. It does not appear that we live in a world in which God's will is done, does it? Last week, as Nathan reminded us, we thought about the future in terms of rest. But this is a restless world, isn't it? A world marked with turmoil, violence, broken relationships, injustice and exploitation. It would not appear to me that the kingdom of God has come. This prayer does not appear to have been answered at all. Well, in which case we may say perhaps it's a prayer just about the future. Perhaps this is a prayer of hope, a prayer for the pilgrim people of God to pray on their way to the promised land so that we're looking forward one day to the kingdom of God coming. But if that is the case, then it raises a second question. How confident can we be that all this praying for the kingdom of God will, in fact, one day be answered? On what basis can we hope that one day the world will end and be replaced by a better one? Is this just wishful thinking? Is it just psychology to help us to feel better? Or is there actually some solid ground that we can claim as we pray this prayer? Well, come back with me to 2 Samuel 7 to see some answers. Last week we saw in verse 1 that the situation described in verse 1 as rest prompts King David to make a proposal to God. And the proposal we saw was that he would build a temple, a house for God. God then responds to David by saying that no, David is not the one who will build a house for God. Instead, as is often the case, God has much bigger plans. And it's God's answer to David, his plans, his proposal in response to David's proposal that we come to now. And I want to say, before we get into it, that this is one of the most important passages of the whole Bible. Of course, we believe that every part of the Bible is important. All scripture is breathed out by God. Every word of the Bible is important. But there are some chapters that take you more quickly and more clearly to the heart of the Bible than others. And this is one of those. Let me give you three quick illustrations to drum this in. Firstly, this chapter, as I said in my trailer, if you saw it yesterday, is like the engine of the whole Bible. So it is no exaggeration to say that we are lifting the bonnet of the Bible's workings in this chapter. And if we understand this chapter right, we will actually gain a better understanding of the whole Bible, of the way the whole Bible works. Because this is the chapter that takes in the fuel of God's prior promises to Abraham and Moses and then powers the story onwards all the way to Jesus. It is the engine room of the Bible. Or it's like a busy railway station. You know you get kind of stations like Lancaster where things just go straight through. But some stations like Charing's Cross or Birmingham New Street or Waterloo, they are intersections. And to get almost anywhere else in this country, you have to go through one of those stations. And 2 Samuel 7 is like that because all the great themes and the threads of the Bible that go right back to Moses and Abraham and creation, all of those lines pass through 2 Samuel 7 and then on to the rest of the journey. Or one more illustration, just to drum this in, just so we really do understand how important this chapter is. This chapter is a towering skyscraper over the landscape of the Bible. So we get in, we go to the top floor, and suddenly all the details of all the streets 
fit into place with that bird's eye view. And so what I'm proposing is that this chapter, is, is, if we understand it, is going to help us to, to actually see how the whole Bible fits together. But we might then say, well, how does that help us? What use is it to see the way the Bible fits together? Is this just of interest to the Bible overview buffs among us? Is it just something that, that should interest us? Well, no. Well, yes. <laughs> It should interest us if we're a Bible-loving church, but what good is it going to do to us on a Monday morning? Well, here's the thing, and this is tremendously important. See, in one sense, it doesn't matter that we understand how the Bible fits together for its own sake. But what matters is that we see the way the Bible fits together around Jesus Christ. It matters because it helps us to understand him. It matters that we understand all the threads of this chapter and all the lines of the Bible converge on him. It matters that we know that God has kept all his promises to Israel and David and before them to Moses and Abraham and before them to the creation in him. It matters that we understand that Jesus is not just this powerful man who arrived on the earth 2,000 years ago, but he is the Christ of the Old Testament, that he is the son of David. And that all the great movements of history and all the great promises of God come to fulfillment in him. It matters that we see how great and how wonderful the Lord Jesus Christ is. So that when we pray, your kingdom come, we really know that God has kept his promises, that he will keep his promises, that our hope in Jesus is rock solid. Well, let's pick it up in verse 8 then. And we're going to look at it under two simple headings. Firstly, God's plan for David. And secondly, God's promise to the world. God's plan for David, first of all, down to the first half of verse 11. Now look at verse 8 and you'll see that this second part of the speech begins by reminding us of who is speaking to whom. So notice that God is speaking to his servant. It's not the servant speaking to the master, telling him what to do. And notice the way God is named there as the Lord Almighty, literally the God of armies. It is he who is speaking. So far in the Old Testament, this, this phrase has been used only in 1 and 2 Samuel, and always at key moments, such as the beginning of 1 Samuel 1, just when, uh, before David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. In other words, even before God has said anything, he is setting the agenda of the conversation. I don't know if you caught any of the Queen's birthday parade yesterday, but what do you see when you see the Queen's birthday parade? You see soldiers, soldiers carrying guns and swords in uniform. You're reminded that she is the Queen of the armies. And the Lord Almighty means exactly that. He is the Lord of the armies. He is the Lord of all power. And right at the beginning, he is setting the direction of the conversation. Remember, in the first few verses, David thought he was going to do something big for God. And God is saying, no, it's me, the Lord, who is going to do something big for you. And then he does two things. He firstly reminds David of what he has done, and then what he will do in the future. Firstly, what God has done for David. Verse 8 again. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God reminds David that he is where he is because of God. David is not what people today call a self-made man. 
You know, whenever you see Alan Sugar on TV, he always likes to remind us that he, he began in this kind of marketplace in the east end of London, and now he's a global millionaire. He's a self-made man. He's climbed the ladder by his own working. But God is reminding David that he is not a self-made man. His trajectory has been even more impressive than the trajectory of someone from a market trader to a global tycoon. But David's trajectory from lowly shepherd boy to shepherd king of Israel has all been God's doing. God says, cast your mind back, David, over the trajectory of your life. Do you remember when Samuel picked you out from your brothers? That was me, the Lord Almighty, who made that happen. Do you remember that time you slung that stone at Goliath and it just went straight into his forehead and changed the history of Israel? Well, that was me, the God Almighty, who made that happen. Do you remember that time when Saul tried to pin you to the wall with his spear and it missed? Well, that was God Almighty who made that happen all of those times. Remember every time you defeated the Philistines? That was me too. In fact, if you skim your eyes down the passage, you'll see that almost every line has God doing something. I took, I cut off, I will make, I will provide, I will plant, I will raise, I will establish. In fact, 31 verbs in 12 verses have God as the subject of the verb. This is all about God's doing. This is not about David or his plans or his ideas, but this is God. Almighty, working in his world. And as we saw last week, God does not need David, but he chooses to use him. Well, having reminded David of what he has done for him, having reminded him that he is where he is because of God, God now begins to unveil what he will do for David in the future. In other words, from reviewing the past God now begins to give David a promise. See that word now in the middle of verse 9? It is here that we are now moving into brand new territory in the Bible story. We're going to hear things now that have never been said before. Here is God making a solemn promise about the future, what God will do for David. Now remember that what prompted David to propose making a house in verse 2, was this feeling that he had arrived at the goal of God's plans for him. Now David now learns how premature that was. He's now going to see that actually God has much, much bigger ideas in mind. Much bigger ideas. And to understand this, we need to see that there are three pieces to the promise that God now gives to David. And each of these three pieces, we will only understand if we understand what they rest on, that they rest on something that God has said in the past. So to go back to my example at the beginning, here are three trains arriving at the station, and they've come from somewhere, and they're going somewhere. And that's what we need to get our heads around. So three pieces of the promise. Firstly, God promises David a great name, verse 9. Now, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Well, what is all this about? Why does it matter that David's name is great? Of course, in one sense, David's name was already great. He had gone from an unknown shepherd boy looking after his father's sheep to the shepherd king of a great nation. In fact, here we are, 3,000 years later, talking about David, speaking his name. And how many Amalekite kings can you mention? How many Philistine kings have you thought about today? His name is already great. But to understand why this matters, we need to see that this part of the promise rests on another promise God had made long, long ago. It was God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. There, God called Abraham, another nobody as it happens, and said, I will make your name great... And when that happens, blessing will come over the world. Have a look at it in Genesis chapter 12 on the screen. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God had promised that he would make Abraham famous, and when he does, the whole world will be blessed. And now we see that God was going to fulfill that promise by making another promise to David. So do you see that the promise God now gives David is not something out of the blue. It's not God just saying, I'm going to be really kind to you, I'm going to make you famous, I'm going to make everybody love you. It is actually being built on the promise that God had given to Abraham. Or to put it another way, the promise God gave to Abraham is now going to be fulfilled by the promise God is giving to David. These promises are stacking up on top of each other, if you like. Now this would have amazed David, wouldn't it? Because no single man in Israel's history was greater than Abraham. And God is saying, I'm going to make your name as great of equal greatness to Abraham. And so when the world sees the greatness of David, then the blessing of God will come. And this would have given David confidence. Confidence that we'll see next week expressed in his own Lord's Prayer. Because if God could do that for Abraham, then he could do it for David. Here is God who keeps his promises. Well, the second piece of the promise is place in verse 10. I'll provide a place for my people Israel, and I'll plant them so they can have a home of their own. This promise rests on another promise that God made to the people of Israel through Moses just after the exodus from Israel uh, from Egypt when he led them safely through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. Have a look at it in Exodus 15, again on the screen. You, says Moses, will plant them, will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. Now these words are picking up God's promise to Abraham, but they are now picturing poetically what it will mean for God to take his people and put them in the promised land. Notice that word, verse 10 of our passage, that word plant. He's not just going to kind of dump them in the promised land, he's going to plant them there so they can live there and thrive there. And that word sanctuary is saying that while David wanted to build a temple, God is going to make the whole land a temple. The whole promised land, eventually the whole earth, is going to be a sanctuary, a place where God dwells with his people. And therefore the third piece of the promise is rest. As we saw last week, for people to enjoy life in the land, it must be cleansed of all that oppresses them. It must be purged of all their enemies, verse 11. And this promise, too, rests on an older promise. In fact, this rests on the first promise of the whole Bible. After the unrest of sin entered the world, here is the promise God made to the offspring of Eve about the greatest enemy. Have a look at it in Genesis 3.15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Here is a promise, notice, that goes way beyond dealing with the Philistines. Here at the beginning is a promise that God will put things right fully. A promise that God will crush the enemy of mankind and cleanse the world of all evil so that that Sabbath rest can come upon the land. And notice it's a costly plan because the offspring of Eve who crushes the Satan's head, will himself be struck. Now let's draw these three promises together. And I wonder if you can see the picture, and I wonder if it is a picture that you have longed for. So you remember what David was proposing? David was proposing that he would build a temple, and that would make God's name great. And God's response is so much bigger that he's going to make the whole world into a temple. He's going to end the turmoil and chaos of evil 
So the whole world is going to become a place of absolute safety where God's people can grow in the promised land as they were created to be. In other words, this is the kind of world you might expect to come as a result of someone praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that brings us to the next part of the talk, the speech, which is God's promise to the world in the second part of verse 11, down to the end of the passage. Look with me now at the middle of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Now I want to say that that sentence there, just half a verse, less than half a verse, is the most important sentence in this highly important chapter. Because on that single line, the whole Bible story pivots in a new direction. This is really the peak of the story so far, and from now on we take a great leap forward. And there are two ideas here that are brand new, which get stitched into the story from now on. Firstly, the son of David. Last week I mentioned that one of the keys to the passage is understanding the word house, which, fortunately, the play on word works in English as well as Hebrew. David wants to build God a house, meaning a physical temple. And God's answer is that he will build David a house, meaning a dynasty. So look at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. This is the house that God is interested in, a royal dynasty, a line of kings. And I want us to look at verse 12 very carefully and notice four details in it. Firstly, notice that God is now looking beyond the lifetime of David. This is a promise for after David is dead and buried. See, taking on its own, verse 12 seems to be referring to one single offspring of David. So we may have in mind his son Solomon. Someone who will come immediately after us. But it's important that we see that God is looking way beyond David's life, way beyond one future generation. Secondly, before the word son is introduced in verse 14, notice in verse 12, the offspring is the word that is used. Offspring from your own body. Literally, It says the seed that will come from your belly. And I'm sorry if that's a bit of an earthy image to cope with at this time in the Sunday morning. The seed that will come from your belly. It's crucial to note that because that phrase takes us back to Genesis 12 and to God's promise to Abraham where exactly the same expression is used. And beyond that to Genesis 3.15 where remember it is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And so the son of David is going to be the son of Abraham and the son of the woman who will crush Satan and bring rest to the world. Third thing to notice, that this seed from the belly of David will be a king and God will establish his kingdom and make it secure just as he had done for David. Finally, In a further play on house, that son David will in fact build a house for God's name. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the immediate context, this does refer now to the building of the temple which David's immediate son Solomon would build. But what is stressed is that it's God who is going to build a house for David. David will have a son, and that son will be God's king, and his rule will never end. But how is that possible? Why is it that Saul's kingdom failed, but David's kingdom will not? Well, the answer comes in the final step and the final surprise, that David's son will also be God's son. Verse 14 and 15, look at at it with me carefully. I will be his father, 
and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now, Christian readers need to be patient here. We have this tendency because we, we know the answer is Jesus, like the Sunday school teacher who said, it's grey, furry, climbs trees, what am I talking about? And someone said, it's Jesus. We know the answer is always Jesus. But we get into trouble when we read that into verse 14, don't we? And so let's take a step back and approach it in its context. We need to understand that the language of sonship here is not speaking in this instance of what the New Testament will reveal to be the Trinitarian nature of God. It is not speaking of God the Son, the eternal pre-existent second member of the Trinity. It is speaking of the Son of God. And to speak of the Son of God is simply to pick up a common idea in the ancient world that what the Son did is what the Father did. See, in our modern post-industrialized world of social mobility, we've lost this idea. But up until a couple of hundred years ago, if your father was a baker, you would be a baker. If your father was a blacksmith, you'd be a blacksmith. If your father was a farmer, you'd be a farmer. And if your father was a king, you would be a king too. And this is how the language of son of God is being applied here. God is the king of Israel. Samuel, the prophet, was very clear about that. God is the king of Israel. But now, God has given a human king to Israel, and that human king takes the title son of God, because as God is the king, so he is the king. And he will rule God's people under him, who will sit on the throne of God in Jerusalem. In other words, this is always what Adam was meant to do. Adam, you may remember, the first man was meant to be the king of God's world under him. He was meant to rule this world under God. Well, here is what that son of God didn't do. Here is what this son of God will do. And therefore, verses 14 and 15 are incredibly significant for understanding how the rest of the Bible is going to unfold. Because in a sense, they narrow the promises down. All of these promises about a people, a nation, a kingdom, a land, a blessing, they all now come to focus on this one man, this son of David. And so as we read the Bible story from here on in, what matters is the king, because he is God's son. And in verse 14 and 15, two things are going to be true. Look at verses 14 and 15 again and see if we can get clear on this. Firstly, notice in verse 14 that as one king succeeds another king in the line of David, there will be good kings and bad kings. Some of the kings will be really bad. Some of them will do things like worship pagan deities and even sacrifice their children to pagan gods. Some of these kings will not look like the Son of God at all. Some of them will be quite good kings. Some of them will respect God's word, will listen to God's promise, will lead God, uh, God's prophets, will lead God's people well. And some of them will be a bit in between. Some will be good in their intentions but will tolerate things that they shouldn't have tolerated. Some, like Solomon, will start well and end badly. And so we're looking ahead in verse 14 to a whole History of the kings of Israel, some good, some bad, some mediocre, some trying their best, some a disaster. But here's the thing we need to understand, that for all of them, from the very best to the very worst, they are all the son of God, son of David, because they take the title of the king of Israel. This is not to do with a personal relationship with God. But the second thing that is true is in verse 15. That no matter how bad these kings are, what really matters for the salvation of the world is God's promise to David. That God's promise to David will never be taken away. That David's dynasty will go on and on and on, not for their sake, 
but for the sake of God's promise to David. Now have a look at the diagram that might just help visual learners among us. The promise is given to David by God. And we're looking at a series of kings, some good, some bad, that take us right through the history of Israel. Good kings, bad kings, right to the end. But through them all runs the promise of God to David that one day his blessing will come through his son. Because look at verse 16. Here is the word of God. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What a remarkable thing to think that the salvation of the world depends on the king of Israel. Well, let me give you an example. Just uh, flip forward. Put something in 2 Samuel 7, a finger or something, and just flip right a little bit to 1 Kings 15, page 355, if you're using a pew Bible. Here's just one example of many. We're introduced here to Abijah. And the summary of his reign goes like this. 1 Kings 15, verse 1. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake... The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. Good kings come. Good kings come and go. Bad kings come and go. But it's the promise of God to David that matters. Well, flip back to 2 Samuel 7. And notice that from this point onwards, a tension is set up within the pages of the Bible. A tension that builds and builds as time goes on. See, on the one hand, the hope of Israel now comes down to this one man, the son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. This is who we should be looking for as we read our Bibles from this point on. And what a hope it is. It is no small thing, is it, to place on the shoulders of one man the hope of a perfect world the hope of crushing Satan, of driving out everything unclean from this earth and restoring all things. But alongside that hope is the constant reality of life in a chaotic world as one king fails to deliver and fails to deliver. And as we read the rest of the story, disappointment follows disappointment as the people fall more deeply into sin. Shortly after David, Solomon himself, so full of wisdom and promise, will fail. The kingdom will split. And the two parts of the kingdom will actually be taken into exile. And so Israel will look like it no longer exists. And if you read at the end of 2 Chronicles, you'll see the temple burnt down and the king taken and captured like a bird in a cage. And in that situation of hopeless, darkness, despair, of suffering and sin, what did the people need? When the land lay ravaged and burnt, when their families had been captured and taken into exile, when the walls of Jerusalem were crumbled, when the king of Israel had his eyes poked out by a pagan king, when the temple stones barely lay on top of one another, what did they need? They needed to know that God could be trusted to keep his promise. They needed to know that when they could pray, your kingdom come, God would answer. And so we get some hope expressed like this, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so can you imagine being there in the exile and hearing those words and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the years pass, 400 years. And one day an angel turns up in a place called Nazareth and says to a woman called Mary, these words that sound like the angel is just reading out of the verses of 2 Samuel. I've already sung it this morning. Luke 1.31, you will be with child and will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And imagine when Mary heard the angel Gabriel say that. As the Christmas carol puts it, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Then she knew that the long-awaited promise was about to be fulfilled because God the Son was coming into the world to do the work of the Son of God. Well, there's plenty more we could say. We'll come back to this passage next week and see the prayer that David prays in response. But I want to conclude now with three implications. And I think the, this passage gives us three powerful implications to take away and to go and think about. First one is simply to stand back and be amazed at the brilliance of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. See, it's possible, isn't it, to know lots of stuff about the Bible. The Bible has lots to teach us. It teaches us about God, creation, redemption, about the future, judgment, angels, heaven, hell. It teaches us about time, generosity, sex, marriage, singleness, the Sabbath, the Bible has all sorts of good things to teach us. And it's possible to know all sorts of things about the Bible, but still not know what the Bible is about. To miss the wood for the trees, to be so consumed by the details that you miss the big picture. And none of that makes any sense at all. None of it has any value at all until you see that it is held together by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a wonderful penny-dropping moment that we looked at fairly recently on Sunday morning at the end of Luke's Gospel. When this becomes clear to the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead, which of course they don't believe because people don't rise from the dead. So they are actually talking to Jesus as a stranger. They don't recognize him. They have no idea who he is. These are people who have seen Jesus do great miracles. They're in the presence of his greatness, but they are blind to it. And how does Jesus change their minds? How does he convince them? Well, you might have expected him to say, look at me. Don't you recognize me? Here I am. I've, I've risen out of the grave. You can now believe. But he doesn't do that. He said he opens the Bible. He gives them a Bible study. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. See, you see what Jesus is doing? Instead of saying, look at me and, and grasp my greatness, he says, understand me from all the scriptures. And that's what they do. And then they recognize the person standing before him and they say the hopes and fears of all the years are fulfilled in him. 
Now, what would that Bible study have looked like? Well, he would have taken them to the high points of the Bible. God's commitment to his creation, his promise to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And then he would have shown how in his death and resurrection, he, God the Son, does the work of the Son of God and brings about that great rescue. And it's only when they could see Christ revealed in that greatness from creation to new creation, it was only then that they at last could recognize the man standing in front of him. That was when they got it. Son of David, Son of God, Jesus Christ. Of course he rose from the dead. How could he do anything else if he was going to pull off this new world? And if you're new to Christian things, I hope that what you've seen this morning is that when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about some powerful guy who came out of the blue in the first century, went around doing a few miracles. We're talking about the long-awaited king of the Old Testament, the seed of Abraham, who would fulfill God's promise to bless the world. And he comes with all the weight of the Old Testament expectation on his shoulders. This is the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. And so that's my first implication to take away, just to stand back and be amazed at the greatness of Jesus spread from Genesis to Revelation and to bow the knee to your king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second implication is to find rest in God's awesome, relentless grace to you in Jesus. So there's no question that this world is not the finished kingdom of God. Satan has not been driven out. Injustice still reigns. There is no rest in this world. So you go and have a look at, listen to the school playground. Listen to the way children treat each other, even as they're playing. I mean, hopefully none of the children in here, but have a listen. Or go and stand in the town centre on a Saturday morning and watch people. Even at the best of times, life in this world is a struggle, isn't it? People are pushing and struggling just to live. And then look inside yourself at the noisiness and restlessness of your own heart caused by all the anxious striving for the things you think will bring you rest. We're searching for rest, but there is no rest in this world until you trust yourself fully to Jesus Christ. And his relentless grace, his awesome commitment to bring about a world of rest where all the tears will be wiped away. See, David, remember, began by thinking he was going to do something for God. He was going to make God's name great. He was going to build God a house. But God says, no, I'm going to do it all for you. And we see this great determination to bless his people, regardless of what they deserve. And the Christian gospel is like that. That it's not what we do for God that matters, but what God has done for us. It's so easy to get this the wrong way around. To end up in the restless turmoil of good works religion. Of thinking that somehow what I do for God will make me acceptable to him. So I focus on the rules and the rituals which lead either to pride or to spare. And you end up knowing nothing in your heart. But the endless striving after self-justification. But this chapter is about God's relentless grace to do it all for us. It is God who makes shepherds' boys into kings. It is God who takes hopeless people and gives them hope. It is God who takes homeless people and brings them home. It is God alone by his grace who does it. And so, grab hold of that thread that begins here in 2 Samuel 7. Turn away from ourselves in humility, trusting God completely. Recognize that you are a nobody. 
And God can save you. Come to him as a child comes to their father. Or as Isaiah 30, 15 puts it, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Find rest in God's awesome, relentless grace to you in Jesus. But here's the third implication. Be swept up in God's purposes in Jesus. See, one of the things this passage teaches us is that the Bible fundamentally is a promise. It's not an instruction manual, as people often say. It's not a list of rules. It's not a how-to book on how to improve your life. It is fundamentally a promise that takes several forms, but it is the promise that is the golden thread that runs from beginning to end. And over the course of several thousand years, through the ups and downs of history, through Abraham, the Exodus, the judges, the kings, the prophets, the exile, the temple, the destruction of the temple, the rebuilding, the return, through all of that complex history, it is the promise of rest and blessing in Jesus Christ that is what we are to keep hold of. All of that, that relentless grace of God in the massive movements of history has been done so we can have confidence to live now in the light of his future. To get stuck into the work of the church as we bring the hope of Jesus to a restless world. To invest everything in the kingdom that is coming. To make your life's work making his name great. As we look forward to a time, as the angel announces in Revelation 11, when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Three implications to take away from this great chapter. Stand back and be amazed at the greatness of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Find rest in his relentless grace because he has done it all for us. And thirdly, be swept up in his purposes as his kingdom comes. And therefore, let us conclude by praying together the prayer that Jesus taught us. The words are on the screen. Let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.